0: Father, we love you, and I'm just so grateful uh, week by week, every Lord's Day, to be able to stand before your people and to proclaim your truth. And it's a privilege that no man is worthy of, but you are a gracious God, and you have bestowed upon me this most blessed privilege, Lord, to be able to open your word to your people, and with fear and trembling and reverence and awe by Your Holy Spirit to be able to attempt to expand upon these glorious truths. And I ask that I would honor You today, that I would be faithful to You, Father, that I would handle Your Word accurately and with love and conviction and in all truth and grace. And I pray that You would give us hearts to receive these things and that we would be edified ultimately by these things, that we would grow in our knowledge of You and that we would be equipped. And that we would grow in our love for you. God, you are amazing. And we praise you. You're worthy of our praise. God, receive our praise. Thank you that our praise is acceptable to you in Christ. Because we are in Christ. We are a well-pleasing people in your sight. And our praises rise to the heavens as a sweet-smelling aroma. And we rejoice even now, Lord, by faith in that reality. And so, God, be, be glorified here today. And may your Holy Spirit move mightily in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right. Well, today we're going to conclude our series on the topic of God's sovereignty. And so let me just say that uh, I know this is very challenging stuff. It just is. And I'm in teaching mode right now. I usually like to be a teacher-preacher. And um I guess just depending on where we're at and the Word of God, that kind of dictates the way that these messages uh, look. And right now, we've just been doing really deep dives into uh, theology, into doctrine, because it's as as a pastor, as a teacher, my heart's desire is that our people would know these things. You know, we uh, we have quite a heritage, folks. It goes back thousands of years. We have an ancient faith so many faithful brothers and sisters who have gone before us throughout the generations, and there are so many amazing and deep theological truths. There is so much wonderful history as we try to plumb the depths of uh, who God is and what He has done and how He has moved historically and moved through His church, and these deep and profound doctrines that have, uh, have arisen and Uh, the different people who have faithfully preached them throughout the the centuries. It's amazing, and it's my heart to know these things. I am moved as I understand these things. I'm encouraged as a believer to know that uh, we stand in a long line of brothers and sisters who have served the Lord well and who have proclaimed these things well and have God has preserved these truths. And here we are today learning about these things, you know, And so I know that as we talk about the sovereignty of God, that there are a lot of different opinions about how that all works out, and people stand on very different sides of the equation or maybe even just right down the middle, and that is all good. I just want to say this week after week, that uh, these things, I've had 15, 20 years as a Christian to grapple with and study and look into, and I've kind of moved back and forth on the spectrum of where I stand on these things. And I realize for a lot of people, these are things that they've not really considered. And so, uh, these are things that are hard to swallow at first, honestly, you know, when we talk about God's sovereignty and sovereignty and salvation. And, and so, I want to be sensitive to that, you know. This is not new to me, but it's new to a lot of people, and um, I might not even flinch as I say something that somebody else hears, and they're like, whoa, what do you mean? What are you saying, Pastor? And so I just want to acknowledge again that I know that these things are challenging and that some people can be downright vexed or grieved uh, as we consider, you know, the, I heard this quote, I love it, It's that the Bible's not hard to understand, it's just hard to accept. You know, sometimes there are things in the Bible that they're clear, but it's a hard pill to swallow. And so I just want to acknowledge that, you know, and just reiterate that it's all love in here, Amen and that we can have a difference of opinions on these matters, and we're all just doing the best we can with what we got, figure these things out, understand it. We want to be a people of the book. We want to understand the deep things of God as best we can. We want to love God more and have sweeter fellowship one with another, and that's my desire. Amen. So I just want to reiterate that we can agree to disagree on these kinds of things, and we should be able to do that and have robust theological discussion and fellowship. To the glory of God. Amen? And so I say that, I actually want to do that. You know what I mean? I want to walk that out. And I believe that I am. And I believe that we are. And I just want to see that continue on. So, with that, today we're going to conclude our series on God's sovereignty. And really, I would say the thrust of this is the necessity of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is necessary. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we go. Now, I think it would be helpful for us just to revisit a couple of short definitions on sovereignty. And so, uh, one definition, the sovereignty of God is the Christian teaching that God is the supreme authority and all things are under His control. I think we hear that. We love that. Our heart rejoices in that truth. Thank you, God, that all things are ultimately under your control and that you are supreme in authority. You are sovereign. You are preeminent. Another definition says that God's sovereignty is His absolute right to do all things according to His own good pleasure, and the Scriptures are very clear about that from cover to cover. God does all that He pleases. He does what He does for His own good pleasure and for the glory of His own grace. One last definition says God has the rightful authority, the freedom, the wisdom, and the power to bring about everything that He intends to happen, and therefore... Everything He intends to come about does come about, which means God plans and governs all things. So, God is very much in control. He declares the end from the beginning. Our God is in heaven. He does all that He pleases. He works all things according to the counsel of His own will, to the praise of His own glory, for the good of His people, and for the furtherance of His own plan. And that is the testimony of the Word of God from cover to cover, right? Well, that also comes up when we talk about salvation, and that's where it gets sticky. That's where, that's where people start to get, you know, really ready to draw their swords and go to battle. Just how sovereign is God, especially when it comes to salvation. And so, the reason that I've really slowed down the way that I have to a crawl even is I would say that these few verses that we've been considering over the last few weeks are one of the places where these doctrines come together in such an incredible way, straight from the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I just want us to read together. I want us to look at verses 35 through 44. Some of this we have already studied over the last couple of weeks. And then we're going to move forward a couple of verses today and complete this little text. And I just want us to see it all together again because we can really get lost in the uh, minutia of this. And so I just want us to look at the text together. And so I'll read, we're in chapter 6, verse 35. It says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all He has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about Him, because He said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that He says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, as I said, in this text right here, there are really four major theological doctrines, if you will, topics that converge, that come together. And so I just wanted to slow down and treat each one of these one by one. Uh, You know, at one point, I had a sermon that had all of this in one sermon. I just thought, this is uh, insane. You know, you can give people so much that they get nothing. And I thought, I really need to just slow it down a little bit and work through these things. Because I just wanted to try to, you know, as I learned these things over the years, I just want to share with you guys the the fruits of my labor, the things that, that I have learned, and as best as I can understand it, why I have landed where I have landed according to the Word of God, the Scriptures. And so that, that's where we're at. So just in this text alone right here, the first thing that we see, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to Him will come. And so we talked about how that is the elect, what the Bible calls the elect of God, the, the chosen of God, and that is the certainty of salvation for the elect. God has purpose to give an innumerable multitude to His Son, who will be uniquely qualified to glorify Him and worship Him forever as the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy of glory." Amen? And so, that's the first thing that we see. And then He says that of all that the Father has given Him, He would not lose one. He would not lose one. So that is absolute security. Every one of us who have been given to the Son by the Father, we will never be lost. Now that is, now that's just ministers to the heart. That's medicine for the soul. There shouldn't be anything controversial about that. That should bless us. And I, I gave that one to Pastor Dan last week, so I gave him the easy one, you know. I, uh, I, I got, I'm preaching the hard stuff. I gave him the, the easy one, and so that was, you know, me just blessing that brother, and he came with it, man. He delivered. Gosh, that ministered to my heart last week. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be reminded of, man. Absolutely secure. Can never be lost. And I love that, that that, you know, the question is not can a Christian lose their salvation? It's can Jesus lose a Christian? No, he cannot. Because it's the Father's will that of all that the Father has given him, he would not lose one. And so we rest in that. We rejoice in that. Well, today. I read here in the text just a moment ago, those, uh, those last verses there, we're going to revisit those, but if you were paying attention, you may have noticed that Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so, I want to answer two questions really. In in our time today, in the remainder of our time, I want to answer two questions that arise from that one little statement there in verse 44. And that is, why can't anyone come to Jesus unless the Father draws them? Scripturally, why can't anyone come to Jesus unless the Father draws them? And number two, what does it mean to be drawn by the Father? What does that mean? Scripturally, theologically, we have to think deeply about these things. Amen? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so, everybody good? You sleep yet? I remember one time I was in a Bible study, and uh, the pastor was teaching, and he said someone was starting to nod out, and uh, somebody started to wake him up, and he said, no, let him, let him sleep. He said, you know, sometimes what people need more than anything is just a little bit of sleep, and so I'm, I'm here to minister. And so if, what they, if that's what they need, let them have it, right? And so uh, I made the mistake of saying that one time in a Bible study, and this guy was like, all right, he laid down on the couch, literally. And I was like, okay, all right, well, maybe slow up just a little bit. So anyways, if we need to do some jumping jacks or something in here, you know, I'm not opposed to that. So anyways, let's return to our text here, and we're actually going to drop back and just look at a couple of verses that set the context for where we're at today. Because like I said, it's easy to kind of get lost in this. It's a very long chapter. And so the first thing I want us to notice is <clears throat> that the crowd, they complain against Jesus in their unbelief. The crowd complains against Jesus. They, they don't believe. They've seen all these amazing things and they still don't believe. And in fact, not only do they not believe, but they complain about the guy. So look at uh, verse 32 in your Bibles with me. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay. So by way of reminder, the crowd had been following Jesus and Jesus had just fed the crowd miraculously. Remember that? The, the five loaves and the two fish, and he fed thousands and thousands of people. So now they're following him, and they want more of that bread. And so Jesus said to the crowd, look, you are working hard. You are laboring for that which perishes. You should labor instead for that which endures to eternal life, right? Jesus said that he was that bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, that's what is most important and that's why you should be seeking me. Not because of physical temporal bread that only sustains life, but because of the spiritual bread that gives eternal life. And Jesus said, I am that bread. So instead of saying, okay, we believe, you know, give us that bread, they said, what sign are you going to give us to prove to us that you are who you say you are? Right? That's amazing. Because you know, best I can remember, just the day before he gave them that incredible miracle, that sign. And already they're challenging his credentials again. And they referred back to the manna in the wilderness and said, you know, Moses gave us the bread of heaven. How, how are you going to compete with that, right? Jesus rejects that claim, and he says that Moses had not given them bread from heaven. Because God was now giving them the true bread from heaven. That Jesus Christ is the true bread from heaven. And the Father has now sent Him. He is in their midst. So that kind of sets the context for what's going on in verse 41. So look ahead in verse 41. Verse 41, the Jews then complained about Him because He said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, Jesus by now has proven to be extraordinary, spectacularly extraordinary. He is no mere man. That much is clear. Nicodemus himself said, you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these things unless God is with him, right? He has proven himself to be divine. In fact, He's the very bread of heaven, Jesus says. And as Pastor Dan mentioned last week, that is to say, He's eternally existent. He came down from heaven. He pre-exists all things. He is eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the second person of the Trinity. But the crowd, they didn't know, understand this. They certainly didn't believe what Jesus was saying. They were full of unbelief. And there were varying levels of unbelief amongst the crowd because people were seeking Jesus for all kinds of reasons. But there was typically a lot of suspicion amongst the leaders, a lot of animosity against Jesus. And that's what we're seeing right here. And they especially take issue with this claim that He came down from heaven. They're like, okay, well, we know who you are, right? Small town. You grew up here. We know who your parents are. In fact, we're told Jesus had brothers and sisters, and they knew this. They knew that Jesus had a humble upbringing raised by Mary and Joseph and that he had brothers and sisters. So I can understand why they would hear this, and Jesus says, I've come down from heaven, and they're like, wait a second. How in the world does that even work, right? But you know what? Uh, and and I, would, I would add to that that That's very common. Unbelief on account of familiarity with Jesus was a common occurrence, right? Didn't Jesus say that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, right? So Jesus would bump into this regularly. And so that's not uncommon. But Jesus indicates here that that's not the reason why they don't believe. It's not familiarity. That's not the reason It's spiritual blindness. Jesus says, you can't believe. Jesus' true identity has to be revealed by the Father, which is why in Matthew 16, verse 16, you remember Jesus asked the disciples, He said, who do people say that I am? You remember that? Anybody remember that? Nod with me if you remember that. Jesus said, who do the people say that I am? They said, well, some people say you're, you know, you're Elijah or you're one of the prophets. And He says, well, who do you say that I am? And then it says this in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, that means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is spiritual divine Revelation. He says, the only reason that you know this, Peter, is because God himself has revealed it to you. You didn't just hear this from somebody else and receive it and accept it. There's a reason why everybody else doesn't get who I am and you do, and it's because God himself has allowed you, graciously allowed you to know this and to believe this. And that is essentially what Jesus is explaining to the unbelieving crowd here. You can't come to me. You can't come to Me unless the Father allows it, unless the Father grants it, unless the Father Himself draws you, calls you. And so, Jesus had already uh, said that all that the Father gives Him would come to Him. That is to say that they would believe Him, savingly. All that the Father gives Me will come and they will believe. That's what Jesus is essentially saying. And that implies that they had not believed because they had not been given, right? Right? They had not believed because they had not been given. Then Jesus takes it a step further and says, no one can come to me unless the Father calls them. That's what he says, isn't it? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me calls them, draws them. And so, with that, um, the the next point, and I would say the, really the, the ultimate point here and what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at, point two, Jesus explains that they don't believe because they can't believe. They don't believe because they can't believe. So look, uh, look at verse 43 with me. 43 to 44. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, that's, that's weighty stuff. It's like, okay, what's going on here? Jesus said no one could come to Him unless the Father draws Him. So, why is it that no one can come unless the Father initiates? Well, this brings us to really one of the two doctrines that I really wanted to, to expand upon today. And this is sometimes called total inability, uh, radical depravity. Those are some fancy words. Let me, let me just say this also. I'm breaking all the rules today, okay? I'm not supposed to be just dumping a bunch of technical terms on you guys. I don't know why that is, but I guess it's it's supposed to be, you know, the stuff that you learn in the classroom, like for some reason that you're you're not supposed to overwhelm everybody in the church with all these big $5 words. But uh, I I learned it, I'm going to teach it. I don't know what I'm learning it for if I'm not supposed to teach it, right? And then secondly, uh, this is the last message. And so this is, I'm just going to give you the rest of what I got. You know what I mean? I try to like space it out, but I got, I got a bunch of $5 words left I got to do something with. So I'm just going to start throwing them at you today, okay? And so if, if you're one of the people that just note, note taking, you love that, that just, that just feeds your soul, amen. If for the rest of, of us in here, you, you know, you're just like, whatever, then, you know, next week we'll move on and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, it'll be all good, right? So just bear with me, all right? Bear with me. So, as I said, um, you know, total inability, radical depravity, what, what does that mean? Well, what that is not saying is that everybody is bad as they can possibly be, right? The, the testimony of the Scriptures are that we are, we're outside of Christ by nature, we're sinners, we're, we're bad. Well, that doesn't mean that everybody is as bad as they can possibly be. That's not the idea here. But what it, what it does mean is that every part of us is tainted by sin, It affects us deeply to the core. Our intellect, our emotional uh, faculties, capacities, even our physical being itself is tainted, ravaged by the effects of sin. We are dying slowly every day, right? Death came into the world and has ravaged all of humanity because of sin. And so this is really kind of the cornerstone of all of this, is that are we so bad because of sin that we cannot... We cannot relate to God in a way that pleases Him, in a way that uh, we can't interact with God savingly because we are so helplessly, hopelessly lost, bound by our own sinfulness, our own sinful condition. That's, That's really the crux of this whole debate. And so some people say, well, we're bad, but we're not that bad. We still have the ability to respond to God, to just to to choose to respond or to choose to not respond, we have that capacity in us. Others say, actually, that's not the case. The testimony of the Scripture seems to indicate that we're all kind of jacked up. That's another one of the five-dollar words right there. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're bad. We're bad. We're in bad shape. It's a bad situation. It's a very deep and dark situation. And so that's that's really kind of like the the crux of this whole thing. And so if we're as bad as the Bible seems to indicate that we are, it really necessitates that God just reach down and snatch us up out of the pit and save us, right? And so, I just want to consider some scriptures from the, from the Word of God that I think helps kind of paint the picture for what, what is our condition truly? What is our condition? Well, Genesis 6, 5 Says this says this of all of humanity at that time. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the condition of humanity. And then God destroyed the world in a flood. Why did He save Noah? It says because God had favor with Noah. He found, Noah found favor in the sight of God. It was pure grace. Pure grace. As soon as the flood was over... Noah gets drunk in his tent, and it just all goes bad. And then as soon as the world repopulates, it's just evil again. Why? Because even Noah himself was not good. It was that God gave him grace. God gave him favor. And so this is the propensity of humanity. It just goes in this direction. It's just the way that we are. And as I've said before, if you have children, you know this very well. We, it's, we see it right there in front of us depraved little sinners, you know, and I'm just dealing with it all the time. And so I understand, right? What else does the Bible say? The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our hearts, the Bible says, are deceitful. That means that we can be deceived. We are deceived. We don't even know how bad we actually are. Desperately wicked, he says, who can know it? Who can know it? We don't, that is to say, you know, you don't even know the half of it. We don't even know how bad it is. Jeremiah 13, 23, he asks this very interesting question. He says, can a leopard change its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That is to say, man, uh, a leopard can't change its spots. That's an obvious answer, right? Well, then you can no more reform your own heart. You can no more go from being bad to being good than a leopard can change its own spots, right? That's what, that's, that's what he's saying here. So that's, that's the condition of man. From the Old Testament, we see that. Now, you move into the New Testament, and the testimony is consistent. You look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, and you, he made alive. God did that. You, God made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead. Dead in sin. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, and the sons of disobedience. So dead in sin, sons of disobedience. That was us. But it goes on. Verse 3, among whom you also... Uh, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. He said all of us, all of us were in this condition. By nature, children of wrath, just as the others. So dead in sin, sons of disobedience, by nature, children of wrath. That's a pretty bleak place to be. It's a grim situation. Paul goes on to describe this in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Listen to this, whose minds the God of this age have blinded. Satanic blindness. It says, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, we're blinded. It's a satanic blindness. And it is God who causes the glory of His Son to shine in the darkness His face shines, giving us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? But that's God's doing. Apart from that, we are blind. We are dead. I know this really just blesses all of us this morning. I realize this is like, you know, thank you. This is encouraging. That's just what I needed. I was so encouraged, I just needed to be taken down a peg, you know? That's not my intention here. Look, I just, I want to make much of God. I want to exalt Christ. And so in order to, uh, to really understand the, the magnitude of God's love and grace and the cross, we got to know, I haven't hit the pulpit a long time. I just had to do it. We got to know just what God has saved us from, Amen. from where we have come, you know, from the guttermost, most, straight out the gutter. God just pulled us out. Amen? Because He's good, because He's gracious and worthy and kind. Not because we were so lovely or inherently good or pleasing or usable, anything of the sort. It's because He's a great God, a good God, a kind God. And so this is, this is our situation. Sometimes people will talk about, hey, it's like this. You're, you're drowning, you're, you're out in the lake swimming desperately, and you just need some help, and God throws you a lifesaver, but you have to take the lifesaver, right? And I don't think that's the way that the Bible portrays it. I think the Bible portrays it. We're, we're in the bottom of the lake. We're already dead. And Jesus swims down and pulls us up and resuscitates us, brings us to life, right? And so, again, what, what I'm trying to say here is that in our, in our unregenerate state, before we knew Christ, before we were born again, before we were alive in Him, the Bible seems to indicate that we, we just did not have the capability to do anything that would please God. God. Anything. In fact, that's what Romans 8, 7 says. Because the carnal mind is enmity, that is the unregenerate mind, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There it is. The carnal mind, the unbelieving, unregenerate mind, is not subject to the law of God. It cannot be. You cannot do God's will. You cannot keep God's law. You cannot please Him in any way. That's what it says. That's what the Word of God says. Well, here's the thing. Hebrews 11:6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So what is pleasing to God, ultimately? What pleases God? Faith. Faith. We're saved by what? Faith. Faith in the gospel. Believing in Jesus. Well, that is what pleases God. But then Romans eight seven says that the unbelieving, unregenerate person cannot please God. Right? They can't exercise faith. They're bound. They're dead. They're blind. Hopelessly, helplessly lost. Well, Ephesians two. Ephesians two has the solution. It says, "For by grace." You've been saved. It's the grace of God that reached down into that hopeless and helpless situation and pulled you up. It says you have been saved through faith. There it is, faith, right? But then it says this, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith is the gift from God. Even the very faith that it took to believe, God graciously gives us that right? We can't please God. There's nothing that we can do to please Him. The only thing that pleases Him is faith. We can't even do that. So God, through grace, by His grace, gives us faith to believe so that nobody can boast before God. Amen? I can't boast about anything. There's only one thing in my salvation that I can boast about, the sin that made it necessary, right? I can can take credit for that. My sin made it necessary for God to save me, and God saved me graciously, mightily, to the uttermost. It's all God's grace, right? And that, to me, just seems to be how all of this ties together. God graciously and supernaturally takes our hearts of stone out and puts in it its place a heart of flesh, a bleeding heart. Amen? I believe this is why... Jesus said that no one can come unless the Father draws him. And this brings us to the next part of the equation. What is it to draw? What does it mean that the Father would draw or call? Well, this is sometimes called um, effectual grace. Note takers, effectual grace. Uh, And what that simply means is that when God shows grace, when God extends grace, it will be effective. It will bear fruit. It will produce something, right? When God causes the light of the gospel to shine in your heart, you will respond. How can you not respond? And that's, that's the idea here. So that's what it is, the, the drawing of God or the calling of God, that is the effectual grace of God. That is when God gives grace to an undeserving sinner and they believe the gospel message. That is God's Grace. I think Paul uses this language, Galatians 1, 15, he says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me. When Paul was a, a baby, born, it was already, the, it's there. God who separated me from my mother's womb called me through His grace. It had already been determined God was going to use Apostle Paul was going to use him, and it was through grace that he was called, and his son was revealed. In Acts 16, maybe you know the story of Lydia. It says, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. This is in Philippi. Uh, It says, she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. God did that. God opened her heart. That's what it says, right? The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me read this one to you. You guys with me? All right, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. It says, "...but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren." Beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. Verse 14, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, it says right there that God from the beginning chose you for salvation, by the Spirit. The Spirit sanctified you, set you apart. You were called by the gospel. And so you see in that, that's, that's God's doing. That's, that's the effective call of God, the effective grace of God. When we were lost in this sinful state, God graciously regenerates the sinner's heart, calling them into salvation, calling them into the light. Um, you've been hearing me use the term regeneration. That's what when, when Jesus said you must be born again, right? The the rebirth, born again. That's regeneration. It's it's when we had a, a debt, we were dead spiritually, and then God gave us a new heart that made us alive in Christ. That's the regenerated heart, right? And we actually see that in Titus. Now, so I, I want you to to listen to listen to this with me in Titus chapter three. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, and this, this, this right here describes the whole process, who we were, and then what God did and what He has made us. Listen to this, Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves also were once foolish. You know what the word foolish means in the Bible? It means the rejecters of God. The, uh, the fool has said in his heart what? There is no God okay? And so that's, he says, that's who we were. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But, so that was us. That was the bad news. That's who we were, right? But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy. Not because of anything in us, but because of His mercy. Because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior, that having been justified by His grace... We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So God did that. God, when we were in that situation, the kindness and the love of God appeared and was poured out into our hearts. And through the washing of regeneration and the Holy Spirit, we've been justified by God's grace. That's God's doing. you read that verse, those verses, all I see is God and what He did doesn't say anything about us right God graciously saved God came to the rescue amen God regenerated the sinful heart and I think that's kind of what we see this has always kind of tripped me out in John chapter 3 when Jesus tells Nicodemus you must be born again and then Nicodemus says well how does that work exactly you know that text remember that Jesus' response is, is interesting. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? What in the world does that mean? What is Jesus saying there? He said, how, 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 am I, how is one born again? Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You know, it's, it's God's doing. God does that. It's His prerogative. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Is there something that we must do uh, to be saved? This really throws people off every time. It, 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 yes, you've got to believe. We must believe, right? You have to believe on Jesus Christ. Isn't that what He said? So, if someone says to me, how can I be saved? I'm not going to say, sit back and wait till you're zapped, right? No, I'm going to say, believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ. Trust Him for salvation. Repent of your sins. Follow Him, right? And so, the responsibility is there. It is on us. God is sovereign, but we are responsible to respond. Amen. We must call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. And so we have a part to play in all of this. We are responsible to respond, to believe, to trust. But God Himself graciously even gives us the ability to do that. So uh, we're actually making good time here. So be, of, be, of good, uh, you know, be encouraged. We're making good time. We're going to get out of here pretty earlier today. Um, But I wanted to just share with you, this debate, man, this goes way back. This debate goes way back throughout church history. And I just wanted to share this with you a little bit because uh, it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating how this has played out through history, even to this day. And most of us don't even realize it. But obviously, these things are all throughout the Scriptures and in a lot of ways, these things were just generally accepted as normal amongst much of uh, many of the, uh, the saints throughout history. But the first time this issue really exploded was in 410, 410 AD. And uh, you may have heard the name Saint Augustine. I'm not going to really get into who he is, but man, he was just one of the most uh, influential you know, theologians. Throughout church history, we just don't even—I couldn't even begin to explain to you now how we've been influenced by what God has done through Augustine uh, in, in church history, Saint Augustine. And so um, he he wrote a book called Confessions, and in it he had this really beautiful prayer where he acknowledges that, you know, it, it's something of the to the effect of you know God, you know. Um, give me the ability to do your will and then command what you will, right? Give me the capacity to obey you and then command what you will. He says, for I'm sure that I cannot obey you if you don't, right? And I think many of us can relate with that, right? We hear that and say amen to that. I know, I know what that's like. I'll, I often will pray, you know, God, just give me the. Don't we pray that God give me the strength to do to do Your will, give me the the ability to obey, because we just struggle with obedience, right? It's just it's in us, right? Well, there was a guy named Pelagius, and he was uh, from Britain. There's so much like interesting history going on here. The barbarians are like ravaging the the uh, Roman Empire at this point. So Pelagius was a a uh, British monk who had to escape from Britain because of the the Saxons and the Visigoths and the, the Vandals, uh, barbarians, and so uh, he he makes his way over into Africa. He gets a ha- he gets a copy of this book, Confessions. Reads that prayer and just explodes. That makes him so mad because he feels like it's a cop out. It's a cop out. We have responsibility here. We have to. Uh, you can't just say God give me the ability to do it. Otherwise, I can't do it. And so there it was. So the, the debate just blew across the Roman Empire in 410 over you know, basically God's sovereignty and man's free will and, and, and responsibility. And so Pelagius uh, really popularized this idea that the effects of the sin of, of the fall, they're not really there. Adam's sin, the fall. Uh, we're, we're not really affected by that or tainted by that. We have within ourselves the capacity to simply believe God or reject God. We can believe God and then turn away from God. We are totally free, totally free, right? Well, that was essentially thrown out, tossed out as heresy, and he was counted as a heretic. And about 100 years later, this, this teaching lived on, Pelagianism. It lived on through his disciples and about a hundred years later, there was a, a new and improved version of this called semi-Pelagianism. That's actually the technical term. It's called semi-Pelagianism. And this kind of removed the worst heresies from Pelagianism, and it said that we are affected by, by the fall, we are affected by sin, and, and it, it does require some kind of a divine intervention by God for us to be able to believe, but not completely. And in large part, what is involved in this is a, okay, note takers, a doctrine called prevenient grace, prevenient grace. This is important. That's why I'm, I'm telling you all this. And that is basically, there's this measure of grace that has been dispensed to the world that basically counteracts the effects of the fall, which then gives us the ability to respond to God, but we don't have to, you know, we can reject it, we can deny it. We either have the ability to believe or reject it, and so we have free will because of this uh, this prevenient grace that has been given to the to the world, and uh, and so there you have it, semi-Pelagianism. So I would say that much of Christianity today is uh, semi-Pelagian in their theology. They have no clue about that, though. Most people don't don't know that we're semi-Pelagians. You know, believing that. Um, we can cooperate with grace, that we have the capacity in and of ourselves. It's not, a, it's not solely a work of God. It's not monergistic, another big word, meaning that it's just God does the whole thing. God just, He, he saves. Boom, done, right? Um, synergistic is that it's a cooperative effort. God extends His hand, but then we cooperate with grace and that's how this whole thing works, right? That's, that's synergistic salvation, which is really in a lot of ways semi-Pelagianism. And um, a lot of people, they hold to that whether they even know it or not. And so, I just say all that to say that that's a really fascinating uh, debate and it rages on even to this date and that's the root of it. That all started in 410 and uh, it rages to this very day. So, what of free will? free will. That's what people will often say, well, don't I have free will? Aren't I free? And I just want to speak to this, and this is where we'll kind of close, because I want to deal with the issue of free will. So, we believe in freedom of inclination for sure, freedom of inclination, and that is to say that we all make choices on a daily basis, do we not? How many people in this room this morning decided to hit the snooze button before they got out of bed? right? How many people had to decide whether you were even going to come to church because you almost didn't come? And right now you're probably thinking, I wish I wouldn't have come. But you made that decision, and we were faced with decisions all day, every day. Uh, And so we do have freedom of inclination, you know, whatever we're inclined to do, we are most likely to do, right? That is not the same thing as libertarian free will, which is that we are totally free beings in every sense of the word. And so, I would say that we do not have libertarian free will. And I think that was the last of the big words right there. But uh, I'll explain why I say this. There's only one truly free being in all of existence. That's God. God is truly free. We, We are we're really not free. We are, we are so influenced by, we don't even know how influenced we are by the culture in which we live, the time in which we live, the people that we're surrounded by, the things that just bombard us on a daily basis. We are absolutely influenced on many different levels, right? Wouldn't you agree? God's the only being who is not influenced by anything. He is outside of all things. He is the uncaused cause, the uncreated one. He doesn't need anything. He never learns anything new. I mean, God is awesome, and He is the only truly free being in all of eternity and existence. Now, I would say Adam and Eve were free. They were created. They were good. God said that they were good, right? But then what happened? They sinned. Now, if they sinned, it seems to me it's so readily they sin. man, what, what hope do we have? Because when they chose to sin in that state, in that condition, what then happened? That ushered in the curse. So now there's the curse and there's separation, right? They were separated from God. There came spiritual death and physical death. And so that is the state that we are born into because of Adam and Eve and the sin there in the garden. So we're not free. We're, we're under the curse. We're separated from God. We're dead in trespass and sin. We are dead spiritually and dying physically, right? That's really the way the Bible portrays it. And so, the curse has wreaked havoc on all of humanity, and we're not free in that regard. You know what? We are free. We're free to do what our hearts most desire, and that is freedom of inclination. Free to do what our hearts most desire. You're going to do what your heart wants to do, right? Can we agree with that? We're going to do what our hearts want to do. That's freedom of inclination. But here's the thing. The Bible says that what our hearts most want is sin. Outside of Christ, that is our condition. We're free. We're free to do what our heart most desires, and what our heart desires is to reject God and to live in our sin. That's why when the light came, men loved darkness rather than light. Isn't that what it says? And so that's freedom of inclination. I thought of another big word, but I'll just save it for for another time. And so, you know, I think this is consistent with what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He says, A good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from uh, a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Well, we're not good. The Bible is clear about that. We're not good. And so we bring out of our, uh, uh, what's to say there, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart. He brings forth evil, and the mouth speaks in accordance with what's in the heart, right? And so I think even that is consistent with uh, Jesus' testimony, man, that we, that we are who we are by nature, and that that determines how we act, how we respond. And so, freedom of inclination, free to do what our heart most desires. But you know what? That is not freedom at all, is it? It's slavery. That's what that is. And that's what Paul de- describes in Romans chapter 6. He says, "...for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in guard to righteousness." That means you, ca- you had no concern or care for righteousness because you were a slave to sin. And he says, "...what fruit did you have then in the, the things of which you're now ashamed?" For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So we were slaves, slaves to sin. That's what the, what the Bible says. And there was no fruit to righteousness or holiness at all. We were free in regards to righteousness, meaning that we had no concern for it whatsoever because we were slaves of sin. But then we've been set free, set free. And isn't that what, uh, set free, um, excuse me, when I say set free, what, what I mean by that is that God reorients our hearts. That's what happens. God changes our hearts. He reorients our hearts to desire Him and His will. Then we're truly set free. Amen? Then we're truly set free. God changes our heart. And isn't that what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Only Jesus can set us free, folks. Only Jesus, through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can set us free from that condition. The condition of sin and slavery. And whom the Son makes free is what? Free indeed. Free indeed. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. So question, does this make me a robot? Does this make my love any less valid for Him? Because that's usually the argument that that you hear. God wants us to have sincere love. And so therefore we have to have an actual choice in the matter, in order for it to be genuine. The bottom line is, folks, we're not robots. That just doesn't work that way. We're living, breathing, organic beings. We're not robots. But our will, our nature, it's bound by sin, it's dead in sin, and then God has to sovereignly, graciously give us a new heart with the capacity to know Him, and then we are set free, and now we are free to love Him, to love Him genuinely, to love Him sincerely, to be unfettered, to be set free, to worship Him and to obey Him. So now we are free. When you are born again by the Spirit of God, you are free. Now, we're still battling with the flesh and battling with the, with the culture in which we live, and we have an enemy of our soul, so the, the, the battle rages on, does it not? But we have been set free. We are alive in Christ. We are alive in Christ. And that is according to the good grace of our God. And to Him belongs all the glory. And and so this is really hard for us. I want to close with this. This is really hard for us. It brings up all kinds of questions and emotions and all this. But I would just say that the reason why God revealed all of this to us, it's to one end, to give Him glory as the Savior, God saved us when we were enemies of Him, when we were dead in our sin and loving our sin and rebelling against a good and holy God. He saved us to the praise of His glorious grace. If it were up to me, I would not have done it because I was going full tilt after my own sinful way of living. And God intervened in my life He snatched me up out of that pit and He set my feet on the rock. He gave me eyes to see. He gave me a new heart, a heart to believe and to love Him with and to serve Him with and to seek to obey Him with, amen? And that's true for us in here. If you know Jesus Christ, God did that. To God be the glory, amen? To God be the glory. So God reveals what He reveals about Himself for His own glory, ultimately, and He should be exalted for it. And I know these things are hard, hard to grapple with. I know that. And I'll be the first to admit it. But it just seems to me like that is the overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures if, we're, if we look at it openly, you know what I mean? And so, anyways, to God be the glory, he has been good to us. God so loved the world, you know, He gave His only begotten Son, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we all failed to live. We blew it. A million, trillion times over, we've blown it. We know that, don't we? In our heart of hearts, we know that, and God knew that too. And still, God sent His Son to die in our place, to take the wrath that we deserved upon Himself as one and only holy and beloved Son lived the life that we could never live, and then He died the death that we all deserved. He took God's wrath there on that tree. He drank the cup of God's wrath for us, and then He gave us His righteousness, gave us as a gift His perfect life on our account. It was accredited to us through faith. He died there on that tree. He was buried. He rose again from the grave. Three days later, in accordance to the Scriptures, He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and even now He intercedes on our behalf as a loving and faithful and sympathetic high priest. And He deserves glory. And one day we're going to be in heaven glorifying Him as the Lamb who was slain, who has saved an innumerable multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Amen? He's worthy. He's redeemed us. We were not a people. He made us a people. He called us out of darkness and into the light. And we are a people of His own special possession. We are a peculiar people for His own glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love You. We praise Your holy name. This is very deep and profound and even difficult uh, truths to consider, to chew on but you've revealed them to us in your Word, God, and so it's my desire that we just take a, a hard look at it. And so, Father, I pray that you have received glory here today as you've been exalted as the Savior, and we give you honor and praise, and we love you, Lord, and we bless your holy name, and we thank you so very much for your great mercy, your loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.